This means you're failing English. Me fail English? That's impossible. Hi there, and welcome to Baseball by Design. I am SportsLogos.net minor league baseball correspondent Paul Caputo, broadcasting live, as always, from the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. I am so pleased to welcome back to the podcast designer extraordinaire Todd Radom. Todd Radom, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Paul. How are you, my friend? I'm doing very well. This is one of my favorite things. Just like every once in a while on this podcast, we just check in and we usually find some like goofy, you know, some goofy reason, some goofy excuse. On this episode, this is episode 107 of Baseball by Design. You and I spoke back on episode 58 last year. We did that episode about ligatures, which turned into a conversation about interlocking letters. And then during that episode, we said, hey, we're going to come back in about a year and talk about apostrophes, in particular, the Baltimore Orioles and their upside down backwards apostrophes. If you don't mind, we're going to go to the tape, Todd. I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but can I get you to commit in early 2024 to uh, episode 107 on how come the Baltimore Orioles have that upside down backwards apostrophe in their logo? Oh, I think you and I would. I, I'm first of all, sign me up. I will actually absolutely do it. Uh, and you and I, we could, we could, pui, we could spit like all kinds of vitriol all over it. You'll see. I had my, I had my math slightly wrong here. It is not 2024 yet. It is the end of 2023. But you were gracious <laughs> enough to come back and talk about apostrophes, and I bet you we'll find some other things to talk about too. So happy end of the year. Happy almost the new year. Happy first holiday season in Philadelphia for you. Yeah, actually, second holiday season. I moved here just about a year ago. Uh, if you recall, Paul, and I'm sure you do, you and I saw one another at the World Series yeah. in Philly in 2022. I was hoping for a repeat performance <sighs> to be able to see you in person again and share a beer in 2023, but it was not to be. The wheels fell off the Phillies bus very, very suddenly, very unexpectedly, Yeah, um, kind of a shocking World Series. The results of the World Series, insofar as the Rangers winning it, were not necessarily shocking, but uh, the fact that, that it wasn't here, I, yeah. I was disappointed. Well, I was thinking that, right? I was looking at the schedule, and I was like, if they play the Astro, when they went up two games to none, I was thinking that if they it would have been they would have been the home team against the Astros and the road team against the Rangers. And so I was looking at the schedule. I had a big work event coming up. And so I was like, can I make this happen? And uh, you're absolutely right. You you know, it's been I can't believe it's already been a year since you moved to Philadelphia. And and we ran into each other. Well, we didn't we, we coordinated a visit at game three of the World Series, one that the Phillies won seven to nothing. Still my one and only ever World Series game that I attended in person. I did get to Phoenix this year to see games four and five of the National League Championship Series. So I saw that heartbreaking loss in game four when they uh, the bullpen blew a late lead and then saw a pretty handy win in, in game five, which I thought was basically the clincher, right? Like I thought that put the Phillies in the World Series, going back to Citizens Bank Park, needing to win one of two. So yeah, it was it was heart-wrenching the way the wheels came off. In no small part because it meant you and I did not get to hang out and have a beer at Citizens Bank Park once again. So, uh, well, that was you know I mean here I am I'm I'm in what I would consider my adopted city 
I have uh, enjoyed cheering for the Phillies this season, but I don't have the the lineage. I don't have the true hometown spirit and fandom that somebody like you would have. But this was a fun team to root for all season long. And I will say I went to three postseason games, one in each of the series uh, at Citizens Bank Park uh, with three different people. And uh, I went 3-0. and And I will say this, I went to game, game number two against Arizona. And I said to my friend who I was with, it was a 10-0 game, if I'm recalling that correctly. Yeah. I said, this series isn't coming back to Philadelphia. <laughs> well, I was wrong. Uh, and uh, I... You know, somebody without that, that um, you know, literal attachment hometown thing can say something like that. He sort of <laughs> blanched from it. He said, don't say that. And I was I was bad luck in that respect. But I don't I don't blame myself. I don't I don't blame you either, Todd, because I don't think you can jinx a team that you don't have that emotional connection to. Right. Like, I think that you. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So but if your friend had said it, then for sure. I, you know, I was, I I was at Game Five in Arizona, and the Phillies had a, a big lead late. And even with, you know, even with a five-run lead and with two outs in the ninth inning, I still found a way to be nervous, right? Like I'm still doing the math in my head of like, oh well, this guy gets on, and then the next guy gets a hit, and then oh look who's up. And it's torturous. It's torturous in so many ways. Like uh, you know, as at one point I remember with the 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 Phillies, like they looked unbeatable, and then all of a sudden they couldn't win a game. And I just remember being like briefly jealous of like Cleveland Guardians fans who didn't have to worry about anything, right? <laughs> it's like, why why do I spend the whole year rooting for my team to make the playoffs and then they do it and I'm too nervous to enjoy it? Well, I'll give you two quick uh, stories that sort of play upon that. I am, as you know, a Red Sox fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, a long story behind that. But at one time I was a long-suffering Red Sox fan. Um, part one of this story, uh, the, the, the two, the two anecdotes are a week apart. Um, I was at game three of the 2004 American league championship series at Fenway park. I stayed until the bitter, bitter, bitter end. The Red Sox lost 19 to eight, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. uh, and went down three games to nothing in that ALCS. And it was um it was it was not a pleasant atmosphere uh i got on the tee to head back to my hotel i was staying in cambridge and uh there were people all around me throwing various f-bombs out (laughs) i heard somebody say why do i do this why do i invest my time in this crap um you know we've got the patriots which, which of course at that time at the sort of outset of their dynasty uh different story now and then a week later, they win the World Series. And that moment of clarity, that moment of absolute peacefulness and zen, which very, very seldom comes to us yeah. as sports fans, washed upon me, Paul, because I was at game four of the World Series in okay. St. Louis, uh, October 27, 2004. And the Boston Red Sox are up in that case, three games to nothing. And they are taking a lead into the ninth inning in game four. And I could see what was going on. And intellectually, uh, I knew, emotions aside, this thing is in the bag. You know, uh-huh. the fan in us will always think the worst. Yeah. But the number of hurdles that they had to overcome to get to that point, 
And rationally speaking, and if you're a sports fan, you're not thinking rationally, you're not no. speaking rationally. I said, well, they're not going to blow this lead, A. All the momentum is with them, B. They are up three games to nothing, C. And only one time in the history of the sport has a team overcome a three-game deficit uh, to win a series. And that was last week. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and I had this peripheral vision, Paul, yeah. the likes of which we've heard about with Joe Montana seeing the field. <laughs> uh, so it was it was peaceful and and happy all at the same time. Amazing. And just the last thing uh, about this, because I know we have other things to get to, I could not help but think during the National League Championship Series watching Craig Kimbrell go out there, and this was not his fault. Uh, the bats went cold, the wheels fell off the bus. Yeah. He did not help things. Uh, however, I will think about being in Los Angeles at Dodger Stadium and remembering how Alex Cora did not trust his closer, his mm. future Hall of Fame closer, to uh, slam the door on the Dodgers and close out the World Series. He brought Chris Sale in from the bullpen. It's it's funny what the playoffs do to you, right? Like, and you know, I mean, I even think about that that game seven of the National League Championship Series. Bryce Harper hit a ball with an exit velocity of 107 miles per hour, and I saw the stats later that he had hit something like 748 on balls that were hit with an exit velocity of 107 miles an hour or more, including w w with 60 hits and 15 of them were home runs. And there were two runners on and the Phillies were down four, two in the seventh inning when this happened. And like, he, he sort of dropped his bat for a, like just a split second where he thought he got it. He thought he had hit a three run home run, just like he did against the Padres last year. And, uh, or I guess he had a two run home run against the Padres last year, but it was, it was one of those, those moments, right? Like where it's an absolute fraction, a tiny fraction of a second or a tiny fraction of an angle on the ball. That is the difference between the Phillies being in the World Series and the Phillies not being in the World Series. And the baseball will absolutely break your heart every single time. And so this is funny, right? Because I had a list of things we were going to talk about. And here we are, 10 minutes <laughs> well, in, we'll, we'll still talking about them. <laughs> we will get to them. But but uh, a Bartlett Giamatti, the late baseball commissioner, a poet as baseball commissioner, who said, in the green fields of mind, it is designed to break your heart, Paul. Mm -hmm. It breaks your heart. And just lastly, on the 2023 Phillies closing the door, here's the thing. You can talk all about all the advanced metrics you want. This team trying to put balls in the air and having them come up in that different air in Arizona, in Philly, yeah. whatever it was, they did not change their approach. Yeah. And teams that bash very, very seldom go deep into October. I'm yeah. sure we could all cite examples where teams hit their way through the month of October, but yeah. when faced with these pesky little nets running around the bases, taking two, uh, stealing, um, all this stuff, the Phillies stuck with their approach. And I think yeah. with a couple of, uh, with a little bit of retrospect, they probably should have changed that approach. Getting guys on base is key. You got to get guys on base to score. You're not going to, they lived and they died with the Schwarbaum. Is what I'm talking about, Paul. The, the giant, giant domed shopping mall of a ballpark in Arizona. Yes. <laughs> Spe so, uh, you know, this this episode, the, the, the title of this episode is going to have something to do with apostrophes. But before we get to the, uh, the Orioles and their loathsome upside-down apostrophe, the World Series, since we're talking about the World Series – you created something that I absolutely loved that I, I saw on social media that you tweeted about where you you imagined 
Uh, and this is something that you you like to do. You like to imagine historical logos and well, and then and then create them from from your imagination. You created a series of historical World Series logos that uh, never existed. And so I'm curious about that project. And uh, you know why why did you undertake that project? And and what was what was your process for that? Well, let me begin with the fact that uh, I I put something out on social media that uh, explained the fact that the first World Series logo, the first real World Series logo, did not exist until 1978. And somebody arguing with me, somebody arguing on social media, can you imagine? That doesn't sound right. Yeah, it's not it's no, not, it a, it's not totally any platform wrong. I've been on. <laughs> However, I will say this. Uh, I, I, I was at the 1977 World Series at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx, and there was no logo, okay? Yeah. There's something on a ticket, but that was the only thing it was applied to. Uh, in anticipation of the 75th World Series in 1978, um, baseball uh, embarked upon a formal logo, and we've had formal logos ever since. So here's the scoop, Paul. In 2003, in anticipation of the 100th anniversary of the modern World Series, I was commissioned by Major League Baseball to uh, populate an art program with research uh, and renderings of all the official logos. So the digital era really begins in about 1992. That's easy. It was just compiling that stuff, but it was um, making digital things that were analog prior to then. Okay, so that's 1978 to 91. And to think about what World Series logos might have looked like if they were actual World Series logos prior to then. Um, the strategy involved utilizing uh, media pins, press pins, where available. So uh, media pins are not sold at retail. They are pieces, little pieces of history. They're quite uh, graphically beautiful in many cases. And so uh, there were examples of, let's say, the, you know, the 1955 Dodgers press pin. Well, all it has is a, a Dodgers cap on a baseball. It was about an inch in diameter. Um, there were some press pins which I amended to make a little bit more, I don't know, saleable for this purpose. But the stuff that you're talking about, there were no press pins from 1903 until 1910. And there were some that just did not translate to the task at hand. So in those cases, I went and I uh, researched authentic pieces of what a club might have worn and uh, uh, letter forms that were true to the era and the right kind of messaging. So, you know, for example, the 1908 Cubs creating a logo celebrating uh, the 1908 Cubs. The Cub in question came from a letterhead design, um, which uh, kind of appeared on their uniform. So that's where that all came from. Very cool project. I always think about this stuff and I kind of consider myself a creative time traveler. If I were a designer in 1908, <laughs> a creative <laughs> time traveler and drawing, you know, <laughs> you uh, and uh, in the in the image that you tweeted out, you tweeted out nine of these logos, including the 07 and the 08 Cubs. I think my favorite on here is the 1929 Philadelphia A's with the with the it's a blue pin shaped like a keystone like Pennsylvania and uh, has the elephant, the A's elephant on it. Uh, and of course, I'm also just because I'm a Phillies fan, drawn to the uh, the 1910 A's with the Liberty Bell on it. But these are, 
yeah, these are these are really fun, right? Like this is, uh, and you've got the the 1957, the Milwaukee Braves with the outline of the shape of Wisconsin there. So it's a really fun project that you did, and and it's really fun to sort of imagine what these what these logos would have looked like. The process, you know, coming from media pins is uh, that's I had you know obviously didn't know that part of the story, so that that's very cool. I really enjoy that a lot. You have. What did you call it? Your your graphic design, time travel, time traveling designer. On social media, you're so much fun to follow because you're constantly tweeting out these little tidbits that you're finding as you're researching, right? Like like news articles from the 20s and 30s about uniforms that teams were wearing. You have a really strong affinity, I think, as most graphic designers do, for printed ticket stubs that you can hold in your hand and put in a shadow box and keep as a as a memento. Which came first, the chicken or the egg here, right? Like, is it, is it your interest in sort of the history of design and, you know, the the pleasure that you get out of researching old design and typography and, and iconography? Or did, did that lead to you, you know, getting involved in these projects? Because you've done other projects that involved sort of envisioning graphic design projects from, you know, previous eras. Did Did your interest in researching the history of graphic design lead you to these projects or did these projects lead you to researching design? The first one is the way to put it. Okay. So uh, to, to give you an example, I've always been fascinated uh, with the iconography of sports, particularly baseball stuff that goes beyond uh, logos or uniforms. When we are talking about printed matter, like you said, programs, uh, ephemera stuff, ticket stubs, pins, um, as a matter of fact, Paul, something you probably don't know, um, a uh, first year project in college. So this is 1982, before most listeners were probably born. I explored the iconography of baseball with a triptych, three large paintings, probably three feet long each, maybe two feet high, something like that, in acrylic paint that covered the history of baseball starting in the 19th century and going right up to what was then the present day. So uh, I think I had the uh, the 82 Cardinals on there maybe um, and all done in acrylic paint. So this has been a source of fascination for me since I was a teenager and it continues to this day, all these years later. First of all, I love that the word triptych has made an appearance on the Baseball by Design <laughs> podcast. Absolutely love that. Ligatures, um, triptychs, we're talking big words here. Absolutely. Maybe that maybe that's like episode 162 is is uh triptychs in baseball. <laughs> there probably aren't too many, you know, except like uh, maybe a, a big one, two, three, uh middle of the lineup kind of right. situation. Oh yeah. This the, the number three in, in in baseball graphic design. How to the, the 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 holy trinity of baseball design. I don't know. We'll we'll find a way to work that into an episode at some point. The, what was in terms of these World Series? The, you know, you were commissioned to do these, these, these World Series logos, uh, these reimagined World Series logos. What was the practical application for those? Did they sell them through MLB, or, or at, where can where can people find those? Uh, they are still on apparel. Uh, Twenty years after I created them, they're on you know things like T-shirts, caps, side patches of fitted caps. Twenty years ago, but it was a licensing initiative. Part of this project was, again, in conjunction with the 100th anniversary of the World Series, right? Mm -hmm. Radio yeah. Shack, I am holding a postcard, a series of postcards, which I designed, which... Wow. This is, this is for the listener, 
yeah. an amazing collection of uh, old-timey postcards. I, I certainly remember the days when you could buy a, like a, a whole pack of postcards that were attached, and then you just sort of tore them off at a perforation. These are obviously still intact. This is amazing. So an amazing series of World Series postcards. Todd, where can I find those? Uh, in my office, Paul. I, <laughs> I don't know I where. I, I'll hold one for you. I have several. Uh, I'd be happy the, to get one to you. But the next uh, time the Phillies yeah. are in the World Series, I'll uh, I'll ask you to bring me one of those. <laughs> All right, we can make that happen. We need to speak to Bryce Harper and Dave Dombrowski. But no, and so really, again, um, the 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 thought in terms of um, of 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 uh, marking the hundredth anniversary of the first modern World Series. And how to um, how to appeal to fans and how to appeal to fans' wallets, right? Yeah. You need art, and so uh, again, you want art that's going to be uh, true to the brand and going to be useful and saleable at the point of purchase. So, to uh, get back to the question, yeah, the, these were applied to all sorts of licensed merchandise, and you still see them on broadcast these days. Uh, again, you'll see it on product here in Philly. I'll see people walking around with. A T-shirt with, you know, probably from Mitchell and Ness or Shive Sports here in Philly with that 1929 Philadelphia Athletics uh, mark that you referenced. So they're out there 20 years after they were created. Absolutely. Well, that is uh, something to go track down. We're talking about the athletics, Todd, and at the time of this recording, it is relatively fresh news uh, not that the A's are moving, but that the owners just voted unanimously to approve that move. And you actually tweeted out, speaking about uh, you know finding your you know, your your design research and your uh, affinity for tweeting out uh, old news articles and whatnot. You tweeted out a tale of four cities, and you've got obviously Philadelphia, Kansas City, Oakland, and now you've imagined or someone has imagined the Las Vegas Athletics logo based on the existing Oakland Athletics logo from a branding perspective you know I'm not I'm not asking you to weigh in on you know whether the team should have sold or what happened in Oakland and whatnot but from a branding perspective if you're the athletics franchise and you are about to change cities is there more value in the brand equity in the athletics identity or is there value in creating an entirely new brand if you were if you were advising this team whether to keep it as close to the athletics existing branding or come up with an entirely new brand what do you think what's the best move for a team changing cities in a, a sort of painful fashion like this well let's start with the reality of it the reality of it is that uh, oakland's ownership uh, their owner john fisher has said that they are retaining the a's name and heritage uh, in taking it to uh, Las Vegas. So that, whether or not that happens, we, you know, we'll see, but that's the desire. And the stated desire was to retain all that equity, all of that history. The fact that this is a franchise that was born here in Philadelphia in 1901, has won World Series in uh, two of those cities, Philly and, and uh, in Oakland over the last 55 years. So that's apparently what they're going to do. Uh, I think you can split the baby if you want to put it that way. If you are going to uh, carry this heritage over, uh, then there's an opportunity here to kick things forward a little bit. Uh, the Oakland Athletics, as they currently look uh, very closely adhere to 
their their last major rebrand, which took place in uh, the uh, in 1987. So it's a long, long time ago. Um, and it's a good look, you know, and they have this thing going for them, which, you know, so many fans gravitate toward, which is this unique color scheme in baseball uh, with the, the green and gold and green got a little bit more vibrant in 2018. And that was in celebration of the team's 50th anniversary in the East Bay. So I think that you would uh, want to kick this forward a little bit. Um, you know, what is Vegas as a construct, right? Um, I think that it's probably quite different from somebody who to somebody who lives there as opposed to you or I, people who have been there. Um, you know, the glitz and gold, shiny gold that uh, exists in Vegas uh, as someone who drops in there and, you know, <laughs> eats and drinks and gambles and watches a show or do you do whatever you do is quite different from a person living there. So I think you'd really need to get into the psychology of what uh, makes somebody a, uh, a Las Vegan these mm. days uh, and, and see what they're going to gravitate toward. Now, having said that, you've got uh, an NHL team, which was a true expansion team, successful, uh, wildly successful, very early in their existence. And they leaned into this Vegas look, but they were starting with, with nothing. And then the, the contrast to that was uh, the Raiders, right? Who, simply carried their um, time-honored look over from Oakland and from LA and from Oakland before that. So I think the the truth is going to be somewhere in the middle, I suspect, for the transplanted Las Vegas athletics. Yeah. I And I've been to both a Golden Knights and a Las Vegas Raiders game. It was interesting to me to see the fans who clearly were holdovers from Oakland, right? Like these are not the fans who were at this game who were just super diehard in your face, it was a Raiders Eagles game. And so I was all Eagles up and there were a ton of Eagles fans because that's, what's going to happen in Las Vegas for any visiting team. But the Raiders fans were, you know, these were not new Raiders fans. You could tell by the, you know, the way they were cheering their team on. And I, th I think that I'm, I'm really curious to see whether the Oakland A's fans stick with, their team, the way the Oakland Raiders fans seem to have stuck with the Las Vegas Raiders. So it's a really interesting thing. Oh, you're shaking your head. No, not going to happen. No, you can't, you can't duplicate that and scale that up to 81 home games. It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I would think without knowing anything about this and I'll just do disclosure, I'll put that out there. Um, they are going to be banking on a uh, bachelor or bachelorette parties. You know, let's drop into Vegas. Let's go to a game. Let's get a suite high rollers, this kind of a thing. But yeah. again, the scalability, given the length of the Major League Baseball season, is going to be impossible to duplicate. Yeah. Uh, you know, it goes back to the old thing about, you know, if you're a uh, baseball fan, uh, it really does require a commitment. It requires, it's kind of like a marriage. You've got to work on it every day. Whereas if you're an NFL fan, it's like having a hot tart affair. You can drop in and, you know, disrupt your weekend and... <laughs> And start looking forward to it on Thursday and your life gets back to normal on Tuesday morning. Not the same thing in baseball. Sorry. Yeah. And you're, you know, you're speaking to exactly what's going to happen. I will absolutely go to Las Vegas to see the Phillies play. I mean, my, my buddies and I like to go to Vegas anyway. And so we will absolutely go when our teams are there, you know, to, to see a, to see a ball game. And that's exactly what they're counting on. It's going to be 50% 
away fans every single game. Totally. And, and, yeah. you know, I responded to somebody on Twitter slash X earlier today, who was, you know, again, that, that, that reference to the history, somebody dropped in with kind of dissing Vegas and I've got no, yeah. I've got no dog in the fight, but I said, I got married there. So I've got <laughs> a little bit of a soft spot as weird a place as it is. Yeah. Yeah. The A's coincidentally how about this segue todd get ready for this this is why I, i'm ready for it. this is why i am a a podcast professional here having made dozens of dollars doing this over the course of almost two years the a's have a logo with an apostrophe in it their primary logo has an apostrophe in it typographically kind of a challenge big a apostrophe little s so the whole scale of like how big do you make this apostrophe and of course, the 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 impetus for this episode is, of course, the Baltimore Orioles, who at the beginning of the playoffs, I put $5 on to win the World Series because I saw them play in Philadelphia when they were there. And I thought they were just the team to beat. I thought they were they looked really great. But when it comes to overall, the typography of apostrophes in logos and in particular, the or well, we'll get to the Orioles and the fact that theirs is upside down and backwards. I don't know if we've made any progress on that conversation since the last time we talked. But as a as a designer who deals a lot in in type, what are the challenges that a team like the A's faces in that logo to achieve some sort of uh, balance and uh, to to make that apostrophe look natural in a logo? Well, it's impossible. Uh, <laughs> there is no right or wrong way to do it. And let's start with the fact that uh, a little history lesson, the old English A for the athletics dates back to the 1860s here in Philadelphia. You know, so before this current franchise, which dates back to 1901, the name athletics associated with baseball since the beginnings of the game and the old English letter form A uh associated with with the franchise or with the name whatever you want to call it uh for a long 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 time so you start with that and you build upon it and uh whoever whoever designed the current a's uh mark with the apostrophe their name is lost to time but uh, they obviously took an uninvasive approach paul they went with something very simple to put adjacent to that so is it superscript is it subscript is it somewhere in the middle I have no idea, but I will say that there are no rules that apply to this. But to your point, as it relates to Baltimore, at least they got the direction of the apostrophe right. <laughs> so, uh, so the, the you A's, had one job. <laughs> the A's logo it has it has the old English A as you're describing, and it's got like a sans serif apostrophe S. The A is centered, and then the apostrophe S is just sort of off to the side and like as you say sort of un as unobtrusive as as possible the orioles logo since it's not yeah well so the orioles logo has the uh, a script capital o and then a script lowercase s which that lowercase s if you just pulled it out and showed it to someone today and said what letter is this it is not super recognizable even as a letter s yeah. what i know we talked about this and and all we said, you know, the last time we, you know, when we said this episode was coming, was we were just going to spew vitriol at this at this apostrophe. But do you have is there is there anything in your professional design opinion that would account for 
the Baltimore Orioles having an upside down backwards apostrophe. It looks like a side where it looks like a, an inverted comma. Maybe is there anything in your professional design experience that, that, that can explain this? No, no, plain and simple. No. Um, you might have seen this just as an aside when the Orioles broke out uh, a, a, a home run chain a couple of years ago for the players, right? Which is a very popular notion. The apostrophe was righted for some reason. So basically they took it to some jeweler. This is not one of these commercially available ones, even though they're available now. You could buy them at the ballpark, but the but the apostrophe was righted. And I wonder, you know, who saw that and uh, and decided to uh, correct an error? No, there's no reason for that. It's not aesthetic. It's just a weird, weird thing. And the fact that it is, has endured for as long as it has is a total and complete mystery. This is the amazing thing about it. Because I was thinking about like the, the A's current logo, which you said was from 1987. I don't, I don't think a letter and an apostrophe is going to make it in today's focus group world, right? Like you just, I don't think you could have a letter apostrophe S is going to make it out of the the first focus group. And so, you know, the fact that the A's are still the A's with the apostrophe S is kind of a, you know, a, a, a remnant of history. This remnant of, of history, of design history here, this, this apostrophe S, the O upside down backwards apostrophe script S is just the absolute like most wild thing that like no one has looked at that and said like let's just like how about in 2024 we won't tell anyone that it's happening let's just let's just rotate it and see if anyone notices it's amazing it's but but I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and say that um I I, I would respectfully say that uh we are seeing a devolvement in major league baseball logos not at the minor league level which I know you you know, that's the bread and butter of what you talk about. But at the major league level, think about the fact that the Pittsburgh Pirates have devolved to a P as their primary mark. The San Diego Padres have done the same thing. Uh, we've got several teams that are, you know, either considering, I know, or are gonna. I mean, you know, this is a long-term trend. And uh, it's about, um, it's, it's about uh, brevity in terms of how we communicate, how everything kind of breaks down to an avatar. So I would say that the the A apostrophe S kind of like says it all. Now you could build upon that for other uses, but for the the uh, tip of the iceberg, the spearhead of the brand, maybe it makes sense. Uh, yeah, I have you know I I, I think so. <laughs> I, I I see it. It's still just uh, it still just amazes me. And I know that we couldn't spend the whole episode talking about this, but uh, you know one of one of these days I'm going to get you know, someone in the Orioles design department on the horn and, and, and ask this question until then it will remain a mystery. And speaking of brevity, Todd, I've kept you way longer than I thought I was going to. It always happens when we have these conversations. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and do an episode that ostensibly was just about apostrophes. As always, I've got your books here next to me, winning ugly, which is an amazing collection of, of, of articles about baseball uniforms and then with our mutual friend chris creamer fabric of the game about hockey uniforms and of course on all the socials at todd radom todd thank you so much for coming on and being part of episode 107 as promised paul thank you it is always a pleasure my friend do we need to pick another random number 
Well, uh, I'll tell you what, we can do one of two things. We can we can pick a random number for the podcast and then go to Vegas and put it all on red if it's you know, <laughs> correct digits. No, maybe we won't do that. We threw out episode 162 and triptychs. So maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll find a way to make that work in some way. The number three trinities, something like that. So until episode 162, Todd, thank you again. Happy New Year. And uh, we'll we'll catch you next time. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate you. All right, everyone, welcome back. So pleased to be joined by my friend, Dan Simon, once again for his weekly installment of Studio Simon Stumpers. Dan, hello, how you doing? I am, as always, Paul, fantastic. And I mean it. Glad to hear that. Glad to be speaking with you once again for the Baseball by Design Studio Simon Stumper segment. Let's get into it. This episode came to being uh, back in episode 58 when uh, Todd Radom, our mutual friend Todd Radom, and I were chatting, and the subject of the Baltimore Orioles upside down backwards apostrophe uh, came up, and uh, Todd agreed to come back almost a year later and talk about apostrophes. We were sort of all over the place. Listeners to this episode know already that we were sort of all over the place, and we didn't spend a ton of time talking about apostrophes, but that is ostensibly the subject of this episode is baseball nicknames and logos with apostrophes in them. And so just off the uh, top of uh, my head here, you've got the Oakland A's, obviously, soon to be the Las Vegas A's. Uh, the Vancouver Canadians have a C's logo. The Seattle Mariners have an M's logo with an apostrophe in it. The who else? The O's, obviously, we mentioned the O's with their upside down Backwards apostrophe with the poor letter spacing. It's just an objectionable logo all around. And then uh, and then very recently, the Oakland Bs for ballers uh, in the Independent Pioneer League were just announced. So that's just a handful of logos. I'm sure there's others out there. What's your opinion as a designer when uh, when you are charged with putting an apostrophe in a logo? Have you Are there Dan Simon logos out there that have apostrophes in them? Yes, I've done at least two off the top of my head that I can think of right now. Um, I might have done more. And I really love doing that because, because it's a baseball convention. It's the Oakland A's. I, I think that would be the first team to do it. But then there were certainly many more. And the two Studio Simon ones off the top of my head that I can remember having done, one is the Collegiate Summer League Birmingham Bells. And hmm. you might think, well, where's the apostrophe there? Well, one of their logos that I did as part of the logo suite I created for them is a bell with an apostrophe S next to it. So I, I use that convention solely because of the Oakland A's, because it's hmm. a baseball thing. Also, I did an alternate identity for the Canapolis Cannonballers. Uh, they play in Kannapolis, North Carolina, North Carolina famous for its barbecue. And in Kannapolis, they have an annual festival called Jiggy with the Piggy, which is a barbecue festival. Uh, and so for that, to coincide with that, we did an alternate identity for the Kannapolis Qs. And there is a Q apostrophe S logo that's part of that logo suite. So love it. Love apostrophes and logos we spoke about that when that identity was unveiled it was not on this podcast but it was you were quoted about it in my sports logos article 
on the Kannapolis queues when that uh, identity first came out. Okay. And um, as a graphic designer and maybe just being somebody who's as anal as I am, I am a stickler for a pet peeve of mine, I should say, is the improper use of apostrophes. Mm -hmm. Not just as a designer, but as we've spoken about previously, you're you're a, a linguistic enthusiast uh, and you are <laughs> you're a fan of, of grammar and usage, as I am, uh, you know, not just the the visual typography of setting apostrophes in a logo, but also, yeah, the actual use of them and what are they what is their function as a uh, as a grammatical system? Well, yes, I, I'm definitely like that. That is due to the fact that my mom was an editor and she edited me <laughs> as a child growing up and it stuck. And now I, I, I see things the way she does or did, I should say. Um, okay, we can go down a whole rabbit hole here. We're going to go partially down this rabbit okay, hole. Okay. Two things. Number one was I remember going to, and I still have this as a photo on my on my phone, going to a Jersey Mike's with my son, Casey, and they had a big jar on the counter, like you, which I don't see at other Jersey Mike's, that had large dill pickles in it. And they had a piece of paper on there that they had obviously printed out from their, you know, their office printer that they had maybe in the back room there at that, that Jersey Mike's that said pickles, <laughs> as if you really needed something to describe what was obviously <laughs> in that jar, but it said pickles, but it was pickle apostrophe S. It's great. And Casey and I, to this day, we joke about it and we go, pickles what? Like what was the, <laughs> what was it that, that, that pickle possessed? So but the other one is there was a restaurant here in Louisville called O'Charlie's. Do you mm. have O'Charlie's where you are? I don't think so. No, it doesn't sound familiar. Okay. Well, O'Charlie's came out with a new logo that then was emblazoned on the outside of every one of their restaurants, however many there were. And as many O names are O'Neill, O'Shaughnessy, whatever. It's O apostrophe. But then there was also an apostrophe S at the end of O Charlie. There were two apostrophes in it. <laughs> the apostrophe between the O and the C at the beginning was a correct apostrophe. The apostrophe at the between the Y and the S was a foot you know foot and inches you know yep. one line yep. for foot two lines oh. for inches was oh, a no. foot thing so oh. not only did they get the apostrophe wrong by oh, not yeah. having it be an apostrophe it was the foot thing um and i don't even know the word for what that foot thing is the the mark but in the same logo they had two apostrophes and all you had to do is use another apostrophe and got it wrong <laughs> just copy and paste is all yeah yes. exactly I, I don't even oh. know how that's possible it drove me and to this even though the restaurant is closed just yeah. the thought of it to this day <laughs> is such a weight on my shoulders it, i lose sleep over it to this you day. carry that around with you i'm curious to know uh, speaking of that weight i mean the the impetus for this episode was the enduring mystery of this inexplicable upside down backwards logo and the O's logo. Do you have a theory on that? Is that, I mean, Todd and I did not, did not sort that out. We just chalked it up to it's a, it's a mystery. 
you have a feeling on it, a theory about it? Like why, why it happened in the first place and why it is allowed to continue existing? I have no theory on why. Well, yeah, no, I do have a theory on, on both of those. Let's do the first part, how it happened. All right. Of course, we weren't there, and I don't know this, but it is a matter of, well, first of all, human fallibility. Somebody made a mistake, okay? Mm-hmm. There's, there's, there's that, and that's allowable. We're, we're all fallible, um, me especially. But in that case, in the case of apostrophes, I mentioned this O'Charlie's word mark that had the, the foot symbol as one of the apostrophes. Mm-hmm. And people just don't notice that. They're they're just not as I, I'm a I am a graphic designer, and but I also think just in one of the reasons I might be a graphic designer is because I'm hyper visually aware. Mm-hmm. And I see things, and I can tell you my wife would never ever notice. My wife's an incredibly intelligent woman, but she and her grammar is better than mine. Her education was better than mine. Her knowledge is greater than mine. But if she saw a foot symbol where an apostrophe should be, I she would not notice that that was not correct. So the person who put this upside down or backwards or rotated 180 degrees apostrophe in the O's mark didn't did I'm guessing did not realize it was not correct Mm. and the theory behind why they haven't changed it is because now because it's become a thing and Mm. I'm sure it's been pointed out to them and it's Uh kind of like they're they're just they're digging in their heels you know and sticking to their sticking to their guns they're just saying okay we're 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 wrong and we're and we're gonna keep being wrong it was like (laughs) <laughs> oh gosh, it was a recent episode of the Baseball by Design podcast where when you pointed out that something was not correct about their either name or their logo, they just said, yeah, we know that yeah. that was his answer. That was the bisons because bison, uh, the, the plural of bison is bison. And so the bisons pronounced the S as a soft S. And they put an S on the end of the word bison, which is not the way you pluralize that word. And so when you say to them, hey, you know, you're the buffalo bisons, when in fact you should be the buffalo bison, they say, yeah, we know, but we've been that since 1880 something and we're not going to change it. Yes, that that's it. Um, and and that, I think that's the case with the O's logo. They're basically saying they're, they're celebrating their wrongness. <laughs> All right. But. Our studio assignment stumper today does not relate to apostrophes, but it does relate to you. You you referenced, you actually said that the apostrophe in question is um, is backwards. And again, whether it's backwards or rotated 180 degrees incorrectly or whatever, backwards is one of the things you can say about it. So here we go with our studio Simon Stumper. There was an outfielder in the 50s and 60s named Jimmy Pearsall, um, who was best known for his well-publicized battles with mental illness during his 17-year major league career, um, which led to the 1957 biographical major motion picture about his life, Fear Strikes Out starring Anthony Perkins, coincidentally of Alfred Hitchcock's psycho fame, 
Pearsall did something backwards in his baseball career that made headlines. So our studio Simon Stumper today asks, what was the thing he did backwards? Did he, A, run out to his position on opening day wearing his jersey, pants, and cap backwards? B, threw a pitch over his head while standing backwards on the pitching rubber? Or C, backpedaled around the bases backwards after hitting a home run? Mm. When you first, before you gave me the three options, I was going to say he ran to third base instead of first base, but that's not one of the options. So uh, my my initial guess is is out the window. The one that sounds, and and I don't know the answer to this question. So I, I'm this is it's it's sussing time. Wearing your uniform backwards is funny, but sounds uncomfortable. I'm not sure how well that would work. So maybe it's a possibility, but I don't. But I don't think so. Throwing the pitch backwards just sounds mechanically very difficult. Like it sounds like you wouldn't be able to get close to home plate. Backpedaling around the bases, a sounds super slightly vaguely familiar to me, and also like the most like realistic possibility for something someone would actually do in a in a baseball game. So because of that, I'm going to go with option C, backpedaled around the bases after a home run. Okay. I am particularly proud of you here. <laughs> you you, uh, you get a cigar because you got this one correct. Nice. Uh, the, but I'm, the reason I'm so particularly proud of you is the reasoning you gave for each one was really, really good reasoning. And I laughed when you said... You know, wearing, you know, your jersey and pants backwards would be uncomfortable. Yeah, it would be. And it might be a little difficult, you know, to, I don't know, really to move around in it. But yeah, that's correct. And the thing about throwing a pitch over your head would also be difficult. Um, and you you reasoned that out very well and you were correct. <laughs> Here's the story behind it. By the way, okay. I urge Baseball by Design listeners if you haven't heard of Jimmy Pearsall and or if you don't know, maybe you've heard about him, but you don't know a lot about him, go to his baseball reference page. There's this thing called the um, the baseball bio project that Sabre does where Sabre members voluntarily write biographies, not books, but just like a long post about an, a particular player's entire life, guaranteed Jimmy Pearsall has a, um, a, a Sabre bio. I've not read that because I was already familiar with his life. Um, I mentioned the movie about his life, Fear Strikes Out. It was originally a book. It was not a biography. It was an autobiography where he had help from a writer. He is one of baseball's all-time characters, and I think you get a real kick out of learning about Jimmy Pearsall. So here's the story about his running backwards around the bases. And again, he didn't run from third to second to first to home. He ran the right way around the bases, but he basically did the 1960s version of a moonwalk, you know? So, <laughs> uh, so um, here's the story about it. He was disappointed by the lack of attentions sports writers gave to his then teammate, Duke Snyder. They, they were both playing 
with the Mets at the time. Duke Snyder at the very, of course, famous for playing for the Brooklyn and Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, but he was at the very end of his career with the, this is 1963, the second year of the, of the uh, New York Mets when they were a horrible baseball team. Jimmy Pearsall was disappointed by the lack of attention sports writers paid to Duke Snyder after he hit his 400th career home run a week earlier. Pearsall had 99 career home runs at the time, and he was determined to make his 100th career home run memorable that they would write about. So when he hit that home run on June 23rd, 1963, the way he made it memorable was, was by running around the bases. Now, in a 1994 interview, Pearsall is quoted as saying, I picked up the papers the next day and I wasn't in the sports section. <laughs> I was on the front page. So he got the attention he wanted from the press, but um, his manager, Casey Stengel, uh, the Mets manager at the time, was not as tickled with his antics and released him days later. So <laughs> um, now here, here's something interesting that I think you'll enjoy as a Philadelphia Phillies fan. First of all, he hit that home run in a game against the Philadelphia Phillies, and the pitcher that day was Dallas Green, who, what would Dallas Green later do, Paul Caputo? He Phillies would lead fan. the 1980 Philadelphia Phillies to their first ever World Series championship as their manager. Right. So there is that connection, but from what I've read, apparently, as the pitcher, Dallas Green was 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 understandably, as far as I understand, not too pleased with um, Pearsall's hijinks. Um, however, in 1986, when Dallas Green was the general manager of the Chicago Cubs, um, he hired Jimmy Pearsall as a roving minor league outfield coach. Jimmy Pearsall won two gold gloves as, mm -hmm. as an outfielder. Matter of fact, Casey Stengel, he was quoted as saying he, he managed Joe DiMaggio. And he said, you know, I, I've always said that Joe DiMaggio was the greatest defensive outfielder I've ever seen. And he said, until I saw Jimmy Pearsall play the outfield. So that's how good of an outfielder he was. So he, he was for 14 years, he was a rover, roving minor league outfield coach for the Chicago Cubs who trained in Mesa, Arizona. And one year, when I was living in Los Angeles, my friend Paul Conrath and I went to spring training in Arizona, and I saw Jimmy Pearsall there, and I was so excited to meet him because I knew all about him and what a character he was, and I had a baseball with me, and he signed it, so I've got a Jimmy Pearsall baseball. Dan, this stumper was a doozy. I really enjoyed what you did with the, uh, you know, taking the backwards apostrophe and turning that into a stumper about something that happened backwards in baseball. So, Dan, thank you so much, and I'll see you in a week. Thank you once again for having me and looking forward to um, the next episode and the next stumper. So, see ya. See ya.